Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Unnecessary hurts and unavoidable trials. Does God ban both? Well, I think in the unnecessary hurts, there's always a way of escape. But in the unavoidable trials, there is no escape. There will always be a broken arm. There will always be a tax audit. There will always be muffin going to heaven via pit bull. <laughs> there will always be an occasional breakdown of your automobile. There's real life to contend with. And I think it's just possible to take it as true, the old proverb from Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. <laughs> it's always something, right? Mark Twain said it this way, that literary realist, he said, life is just one darn thing after another. And that's true even for the Christian. You know, not just for the young Christian, though. There's Ed and Sue Neophyte who turned their religion and God into an it that was supposed to serve them and deliver them and make all of life perfectly placid. But you know, we just went through a decade of one of the most twisted theological heresies in our century. Not for young Christians, but for a lot of Christians. It was called the prosperity gospel. We're still on the back side of it, and much of it still goes on. It was called the gospel of health and wealth. It's an it religion. And what it says is, is that if you'll just believe enough, as it's pandered by certain so-called prophets, you'll be healthy and wealthy, and if you just have enough faith, trouble-free for your entire life. But folks, it ain't so. And the reason is, is because it's always something that you're going to face in life. In part because we live in a fallen world. Uh, in part because, quite frankly, God uses certain difficult situations to stretch us, to challenge our faith, to develop our character in a way that, well, we wouldn't necessarily like if we saw it coming, but it is part and parcel with the fabric of spiritual life, those trials that are unavoidable. In the Gospel, or at least in the Epistle of 1 Peter, Peter says that. He says, Beloved, in chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. It's not unique. It's the ordinary dailiness of life that has all kinds of bumps in the road. It's for your testing. And then in verse 16 of that same chapter, he says, and if anyone is tested and suffers as a Christian, let him glorify God. And in that we hear the purpose of all those testings. As they come, they allow us to be stretched to make hard but right choices, and to see that God is really true when He speaks His Word so that we might glorify Him in our life. Perhaps in fallen nature, just fallen human nature, it's just natural to seek a fantasy and it where we can escape to some kind of nirvana without pain. <laughs> some kind of place where there's no deep responsibilities, no hard choices, and it's not just in the religious realm go out from the religious realm and you have all kinds of secular prophets prophesying a life that if you do this and do that, that your life will be trouble-free. It's in maybe the nature of man to, 
to have these fantasies that they think they might get to if they just work hard enough, maybe to motivate us. We think of that in marriage. We think of that uh, in having some kind of dream of reaching some kind of social or economic plateau, and when we get there, things will be okay. <laughs> but many of you have gotten there, hadn't you? And many of you know it's not okay. Maybe you thought all your life about being married. Now you're married, and you thought, now we're here, and you've just had your first fight and realized there really are deep differences. And suddenly you go, oh no, it's real life. Perhaps it's in the area of your job and you've sought a promotion for a long time thinking, man, if I could just get there, then with what I have, the power I have, the money I get, things will be okay. But now you've gotten there and what you have found is not a trouble-free life. You've found longer hours, maybe more travel, harder work. You found it all right. That's what it is. Maybe you think about parenting and think, gosh, I just can't wait to have this child. And now the child has come home and You've just gone through your first all-nighter and you've discovered your trouble is just beginning. You're kind of like Mr. Bill on Saturday Night Live. Oh, no! <laughs> it's always something. It is. And this chapter, chapter 17, uh, tells us something else. It says that real life doesn't go away even when you're obedient and faithful. Uh, this study we're looking at right now in the book of 1 Kings is about Elijah who had an unusual track record of obedience and faithfulness. But I want you to know, real life didn't go away from him either. And he had some lessons to learn and some hard lessons as a prophet of God who I think here in the very beginning of chapter 17 probably imagined, especially after his first experience of confronting Ahab about his sin and Israel about its sin and then walked away, I bet he began to think, man, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be easy. But in chapter 17, he discovers life isn't easy. And so we'll pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 17. Because after he's confronted Ahab, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here, Elijah, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he obeyed, and he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. Not, not too much of a change there, but it still provided during a drought. And he would drink, it says, from the brook. Now let me stop there for just a moment. If you remember, again, from last week and from verse 1 of this chapter, Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. El meaning God and then Yah at the end of his name means Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh is God. And that was important for this young man because that's exactly what the nation of Israel had forgotten, that Yahweh is God. And with King Ahab coming on the scene and his queen Jezebel arriving, they had introduced all kinds of gods into the national life of Israel, and especially the worship of the blasphemous god Baal. And so in verse 1, Elijah confronts them. He confronts uh, King Ahab and his notorious queen, the Baal worshiper Jezebel, for leading Israel into this greater spiritual anarchy and darkness. And he does so as a prophet, doing what a prophet does, by promising them judgment if they don't repent. Three and a half years of drought. And the drought has already started. And so in verses 2 through 6, after delivering that bombshell, Elijah is told to go and hide himself. And he does 
by this brook in this little ravine up near the Jordan. And uh, he can watch kind of the judgment now proceed over the land. And he can sit there in relative comfort and see this judgment go on as he is supernaturally provided for by a stream when there is no water and by faithful ravens providing him something to eat. Now it's important anytime you read the scriptures to stop at points and try to imagine what is really going on here. There is a storyline, but oftentimes there's a deeper storyline that the writing invites you to entertain. And I think this is one of those places. See, this is a young prophet. And uh, he has pretty much accomplished uh, more than many of the prophets in the past hundred years of Israel. He is already a a notoriety in Israel just with one event. It's kind of like what you think when you're a young man just starting out in the workplace. You know, you're going to make a name for yourself. You come out of nowhere. That's what he did. He came out of nowhere. Elijah the Tishbite, who is he? But he came out of nowhere. He delivers and drops this bomb on the president of Israel, Ahab. Becomes famous throughout the land because he has the power of God behind him. Judgment, drought. And now that he's famous, he retires to the brook Kareth to watch comfortably as this drought inflicts the pain on the people of forsaking Yahweh as God. Now, I think a lot of young men would love to do just the same thing. Start out, you know, with no one knowing, make it big, retire early. That's what he did. That's kind of a fantasy, though, isn't it? And uh, I think that right at this point, Elijah is living in a fantasy. He's probably thinking, well, maybe God will call me out of retirement, but if He does, He'll probably call me to some additional, spectacular assignment in which I can step in, drop the big one, and then step back in the comfort. Now, that's where he is in life. He's got somewhat of an it in his religion as well, and God is going to let him learn that, no, there's real life in a prophet's life as well. Because if you'll look at verse 7, something happens while he stays there by that brook in comfort. It says, and it happened that after a while, the brook dried up. Oh, no. See, that's probably what's going on here. Suddenly he begins to say, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen to me. Maybe I'd ask you the question, has it ever happened to you? Has your brook dried up recently? See, this guy's been faithful. He's done what God has said. He's put his life on the line. Maybe that's true of you. You've been kind of on a, maybe even a spiritual role, as they say lately. You've been obedient. You've been faithful. You've followed the rules. And then suddenly, the things that you were expecting to turn into success turns into a mess. That happens in all walks of life, by the way, not just the spiritual walks of life. I remember a number of years ago trying to uh, get myself back into good physical condition and got into a regular exercise program and six, eight months later, I was really feeling good about things. Uh, felt good about my weight, felt good about my shape. And uh, one day on a day, just like today, walked out, breathed the fresh air that was out there, thought, man, I could just feel like I could run forever and took off for a five, six mile run. And uh, as I was finishing up, feeling real good about myself, just as I was turning into the street leading to my house, I felt my left knee go pop. And my success turned to a mess. Oh, no. And that's exactly what happened. Has that ever happened to you? You've been faithful. You've decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to be faithful with my finances. And what happens is real life comes and dumps a bunch of financial tragedies right at your feet. <laughs> or you're going to be a real faithful parent. 
And suddenly, all kinds of things happen to your kid at school that, that, that seem to just turn all that from success into mess. That's real life. And some people want to click their heels and shut their eyes and believe all that should go away if they just have enough faith. But the Scripture teaches that's not the way to approach those things. You don't go around them. You don't believe them away. Real life is there because you have a real life God who wants to address those real life circumstances straight on. And I think that's what Elijah had to learn for himself. The bricks dropped on his prophetic toes. I can't help but think he was probably stunned at first when the brook went dry. Maybe even thought God was testing him if he just hung around long enough. God would see his faithfulness and the brook springs would return. But they didn't. And the brook eventually went dry. Totally. And now a challenge was in his life. An uncomfortable challenge. And I'm sure he argued with God a little bit. That that's not fair. That I've been faithful. That I've, I've done what you've asked. I've even put my life on the line. And that's exactly how we feel when we have a fantasy we're trying to hold on to and it's being taken away from us. Which is what his was. Whether it's marriage, finances, personal life, or anything else, when your fantasy starts to unravel, you kind of want to shake your fist at heaven and feel like you've been cheated, especially when you've been, again, faithful. And now you're feeling abused. You're doing your part. God's not doing His part in this situation. And you can get so absorbed in kind of telling God off because He's not fulfilling His side of the bargain that you forget that the problem's not God. Now hear me. It's not God. The problem is your fantasy about life. And that all the problems should somehow disappear and life should roll out into a yellow brick road. Nowhere in the Scripture does God say that you will not have trials. Nowhere. Nowhere does it say if you believe enough you will not have big or even large disturbances in your life. Nowhere. I want you to watch real closely here what happens to Elijah, starting with verse 8. It's very important. Because in the midst of probably what was an upheaval for him, as he sat there by this dry brook, feeling a certain sense of injustice towards himself, please note what God does. Because He's going to test this prophet's faith, in some ways at the beginning, sorely so. By telling him that the solution to this irritation, this upheaval that's in his life, is to be found by doing something that he will not want to do. Now here's the principle, and you might jot it down, because this is a graduate school principle. And for some of us, we might not even understand what I'm about to say. But this is real life. And these are real principles being taught here. And it's this. When we get irritated with our circumstances, God usually asks the irritating of us to solve it. Let me drop a brick here for a moment. Does that sound good? Doesn't sound good to my flesh. When we're irritated with our circumstances, we don't like what's happening to us. We don't like what's happening at our job. We don't like what's happening to us personally with maybe a relationship that's gone awry or maybe a marriage that's starting to unravel. We don't like what's happening and we want to blame because we had this fantasy of what it was going to be like. Most often, what God does, if we'll listen, is He'll come in and He is not going to ask us what is easy. <laughs> He's going to ask us what to our flesh is irritating. 
in order to solve the irritating situation. Now, if you don't believe that, watch what happens to Elijah here in verses 8 and 9. Here's what happens. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah in the midst of this dry brook, and it says, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there, and behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, that sounds pretty reasonable to a 20th century American reading that, but now we've got to unravel why that would be so irritating to this prophet. Let me give you four reasons why it is. The first is this. For starters, Zarephath is 75 miles away from where he is in Kareth over hard desert landscape. And so to solve his problem, we'll be physically demanding on Elijah to walk that 75 miles through a brutal desert. The second reason is Zarephath is not a city in Israel. Do you notice here in verse 9, it says that Zarephath belongs to Sidon. Now where is that? Well, if we went back into chapter 16, we find that Sidon is Queen Jezebel's home country. The very one who's inflicting this Baal-worshipping plague on Israel. It's a pagan city. It's a pagan country. It's wicked to the hilt. And not only that, but Jezebel's dad is the king of Sidon and over Zarephath. And that's where Elijah is being asked to go. And let me tell you, that would make a young Jewish prophet's skin crawl to go to a Gentile city to the very enemy that you're trying to rid from your own land. And then finally, if you'll notice in verse 9, he's supposed to meet a widow who will provide for him there. <laughs> How humbling for this guy who has stars in his eyes about his fantasy prophet calling. See, in the beginning, Elijah's thinking of confronting kings. He's already run over the king of his own nation. And now, just a chapter later, he'll stand on Mount Carmel up in northern Galilee and confront 450 of the best Baal prophets, Israel's God, and defeat them. That's his view of life. But God's taking him from a king to a widow. And a widow in the first century was at the bottom rung of society. Totally vulnerable. Most of the time, destitute. Would have to sell herself most of the time in prostitution just to eke out the basic living expenses. And he's supposed to go to a pagan land, pagan city, talk to a pagan woman who has nothing, and that's his call as a prophet. Welcome to real life. Elijah. What makes matters worse is the word Zarephath is the Hebrew word crucible. <laughs> well, that kind of tells you the mission. You're going to Crucible City. It's a little different than the Wizard of Oz, isn't it? That's where he's going to live for a while. It's a totally humbling experience. One I think emotionally I can only identify with when I think about playing golf or going to an auto mechanic. You know, that's a totally humbling experience for me. I go in and especially to an auto mechanic like I had these last couple of weeks since both cars gave real life to me. And I, I found that putting my hands on the hood and playing for its healing didn't work. So, <laughs> But I do, know how to, I do know how to see if the oil is low. But about for, apart from that, it's just a lot of wires coming out of an iron thing in there. But you go in, and have you ever noticed these guys? You go into a mechanic, and he asks you, well, what's wrong with your car? And, you know, I've got 
several postgraduate degrees. And um, I think, this guy's looking at me and cigarettes hanging out of his mouth, and I'm supposed to give him a concise answer about what's wrong with my car. And suddenly I find myself talking like a five-year-old. You know, well, it goes mm, mm, to him. You know, I'm kind of into this motion, and he's sitting there kind of watching me like this. <laughs> and it's making, it's making a little gurgling noise over here, you know, you know, gurgling noise. He's writing that stuff down. And his eyes are rolling, and he's thinking, when is this clown going to leave? And then you show up. And then he goes into this diatribe, this philosophical diatribe about what's wrong with your car. Oh, your seals are busted. You need, need a couple of boots. And I don't want to ask him, you know, boots? I didn't know a car had boots. And he said, we had to turn your drums. I thought you had to play them. You know, your seals are busted, et cetera, et cetera. He goes through all this stuff. And then he looks at you like you're supposed to understand what he just said and agree with him. And, of course, to hide my pride, I say, oh, certainly, thanks. How much is it going to cost? He says, $875. And you're not about to challenge him because you don't know what in the heck you're talking about. You just pay the bill. That's real life. That's humbling. That's the crucible. And Zarephath was the crucible meant to smelt and refine a young prophet with stars in his eyes. And Elijah finds his fantasy here broken. You know, if God is trying to get Elijah's attention that way. I think that people like you and me operates the same way. He, he's looking for us in the midst of these bricks. He's looking for us to trust Him, not our fantasies, not what we want life to be, and not what we think if we work hard enough and follow its rules that we can make it do it for us. God is a person, not an it. He's dynamic, and His goal, unfortunately, most of the time, is not ours. He's got a goal in mind that He'll remind you of every day. He wants your person to look like Him. <laughs> not whether you have a new car. Not whether you got the promotion. He wants your person to look like Him. And therein comes the rub, because He's getting you to trust Him, not your fantasies. So if your marriage fantasy is broken or your financial fantasies today might be broken or some of your personal issues, those fantasies might be broken. Maybe even your spiritual fantasies. Right there in that moment, you can feel real irritated with God. At the same time, God is not going to give you back your fantasy. He's moving you from fantasy through real life to looking like Him. <laughs> That's where he's going. That's the movement in everyday life. And you may want a good marriage, and when your marriage starts being trouble, and it starts irritating you, and you want to blame heaven and blame the person you live with, you'll open up this book, and it'll say, hey, look, you're supposed to serve. You go, what? Serve? Give me a break. That's, that's not what I'm looking I'm looking to be served here. I'm looking to be taken care of. Me, my needs aren't being met here. And in that irritation, God comes back with an irritating word like go to Zarephath. He says, you're supposed to serve. That's right. That's how He solves the irritation in your life, by giving you an irritation to solve it with. Maybe you've got a broken relationship with a friend right now. Maybe you've quarreled or quibbled over something. And it's irritating because you want peace in those relationships. And so God says, how about going to that person and saying you're sorry? What? 
saying I'm sorry, if I go in there and say I'm sorry, they're going to run all over me. They'll abuse me. They'll think I'm weak. They'll think I'm the one who did it wrong. See what we're saying? That's irritating to us. But that's how you solve an irritating situation in your own life. Maybe there's a repetitive sin. Maybe there's something that you've tried to have victory over and you just can't get there. You open up God's Word and that irritation, and He says something irritating. He says, go find a close friend you can trust and confess it to Him. What? He, he might think I'm not who I appear to be. He might see past this image I've spent years creating here. That's exactly right. It's irritating. But you'll never solve your problem till you do. That's the way God works. He gives an irritating word to solve an irritating issue. And that's a postgraduate spiritual lesson. When we're irritated with our circumstances, God will often ask the irritating of us to solve it. And that's just what happened with Elijah. I want you to notice in verse 10, Elijah goes to a new level here in his relationship with God by trusting God above his disappointment with what God said to him. Go to Zarephath. His anger with God about that, his irritation, what he does is suddenly he has kind of a new view of what's going on here. It's kind of like what happened in the old days when you'd be watching television and between television programs they would put up this signal and they would say for the FCC regulations, etc., etc., we're going to have a test. This is just a test and the turkey would come up or whatever it was for a second, and it'd just go doo for a few minutes. Somewhere in the midst of all this transition that's going on in Elijah's life, he realizes what sometimes you need to realize when your car breaks down or your girlfriend breaks up with you or your bank account goes to zero. You need to realize, this is just a test. See that? And what the God of heaven and earth is trying to do is to get you to stop trying to pull back your fantasy, but for you to engage Him in the reality and thereby solve the problem and see Him work. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah. He gets to see God work. Look at verse 10. It says he gets up by his actions of faith, knowing this is a test, and he goes to Zarephath. And when he gets there to the gate of the city, there she is. Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said to her, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Sounds just like a male, insensitive male, doesn't it? All these demands. Get me this. Get me that. But notice here it says, she kind of tells him off. She says, but as the Lord lives, I have no bread. Now that's a 9th century B.C. way of telling somebody off. Here's the way it really is sounding. As the Lord your God lives, that's your reality. I have no bread. That's my reality. And there's Elijah standing in the midst of this new test with this person who, as verse uh, 12 goes on to tell us, is preparing her last meal for her son, and then they're going to die. You see, the drought is taking its toll here. And she has nothing, and she's finally given up. So she's going to do this one last meal, and then they're going to starve to death. And here comes this kind of, on the front end, callous, demanding prophet saying, get me this and do this. Sounds callous, doesn't it? But the reality is, is Elijah is at a new level of faith. See, God said that widow would be there, and God said that widow would provide. He doesn't know how at this point yet, but he knows that will take place, and he's going to stick with it because there's no 
turning back for him at this point. He's learning how to stay with the Word of God to its conclusion. And here's how it concludes. Look at verse 13. Elijah says to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you've said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and one for your son. Now, she probably said in her heart, Right. But you know, desperate people trying to get away from death do desperate things. And so he follows that up by saying, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. And here's what she did. She went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate out of that little bit for many days. It just kept multiplying miraculously. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. And here's what Elijah learned because he learned a tremendous lesson and it's one that if you're ever going to be spiritually mature, you've got to learn because this class will come around every so often and stare you in the face. Here's what it is. You've got to learn to stay with what sometimes is an irritating statement from the Scripture to your life. You've got to learn to stay with it and what God asks of you. Despite the circumstances look desperate, it doesn't seem like it's saying the right thing. In fact, many times what God will ask you to do will be just the opposite of what you think needs to be done. Just the opposite. It'll make no sense in that emotional moment whatsoever. But the person who's going to go on to a master's degree has got to learn to stay with that irritation until it turns, as it does here, into the miraculous provision of God. That's what happened with Elijah. He learned a whole new lesson here about life. To stay with it until God demonstrates His mighty hand. You know, a number of years ago, uh, I had entertained the idea of writing a book. And of course, anybody who's written a book knows it's kind of like giving birth. But I had this vague idea of this book I wanted to write on marriage. And I went to the elders one day and I said, this year as part of my goals, can I have a half day a week just to write? Because I'd like to write this book. At least I think I, I, I want to. And, and I, I, because I'd felt impressed for years on this particular subject to write this book. And so I asked them because I wanted to get the process started and they agreed to let me have for that year a half day. So I went up to Conway every Wednesday and uh, met uh, with Dan Gerald up in Conway and he gave me an office at the church there where I could be by myself and write for a half day. So I sat there and um, started out kind of strong first couple of uh, Wednesdays and then the brook just went totally dry. Just sat there Wednesday after Wednesday. Sat there. And there was this real challenge because I kind of felt inside I was supposed to do this, but there just came a place where whether it was too much going on in my life or whatever, but I couldn't do it. And so as I drove home one particular Wednesday, um, just talking with the Lord about this, which I thought I was supposed to do, I just said, I cannot do this. I can't do it. It's just not working out. And uh, I think that's what I'm supposed to do, but I, I just can't do it. And all I can tell you is in this kind of sense of your spiritual life that you have as you pray. There was just this ever so strong impression that the book would be written. It's okay. Well, I decided I, I couldn't do it. So I stopped going up there on Wednesday. And uh, I have to say that I even, I think, told my wife, I said, you know, if, if the book's going to be written, God's going to write it. 
I, I don't know how. I don't know how. Now, this is just out of my particular area of life, but I think that's the only place I can share. Several months went by, and I remember I got a call from the senior editor at NAV Press, and he was passing through and wanted to meet with me, and I had never met with an editor. No one had ever called me in my life. And he flew into Little Rock, and we had lunch together, and in the midst of the conversation, because uh, one of his staff had heard me speak in Denver, he said, have you ever considered writing a book? And I said, well, I, yeah, I have, but I quit. <laughs> I just couldn't get it done. He said, well, what's it on? I told him, and he said, well, you ought to consider that. And I said, well, I just don't think I can do it. And uh, he said, well, if you ever want to, call me. Okay, so I said goodbye. Then several more months went by, and a young man by the name of Bill Hendricks came through, and he was doing some research on churches around the country, and he wanted to have lunch with Bill Wellens and I. And as we concluded the interview over lunch, Bill was asking him, well, what all do you do, Bill? Uh, Bill is Howard Hendricks' son. And Bill said, uh, well, he said, what I like to do is help guys write books. <laughs> he said, I'm a wordsmith. And I just want to tell you, in all these little events, when those things would happen, there was a sense inside where I didn't want to jump out and say, it's going to be done, but just kind of privately treasuring these little moments in my heart. And Wellen said, well, Robert's been trying to write a book and hadn't had an opportunity to do that. You ought to think about that. And he said, I can't do that. I'm too busy. So he left. But as he was leaving, Bill said, well, maybe I'll just send you some of these tapes that he's done just so you can kind of get an idea of what he's talking about. He said, that's fine. He got on the plane and left. Months went by. Then one day there was this letter. And I, just this letter showed up. It was 12 pages long. It opened it up. And, and the first sentence says, before I get into all the details, I want to spare you the expense. I want to help you write that book. Uh, the brook went dry. But there was kind of a word. And you stay with the word and just kind of think about it. And oftentimes, God's miraculous hand will provide. Now, it's not that writing the book was easy. It wasn't. But with the provisions that He made, you know, when I look at that, I think of that as the marvelous grace of God at work. I see the living God moving. And I look back now and I say, what I felt impressed with when it said the book will be written... That wasn't field of dreams. That was the living God at work in my life. Has He shown you something like that in your life? Has there come a place where He said, hey, the brook is dried up, and this word that I'm speaking to you, it's hard. And it attacks your pride. And it goes against your inclinations. And you don't like it, and everything around you says, don't do it. Are you ready for a master's? Ready to step up to another level of spiritual life and to stay with it until it transforms itself from something irritating to the miraculous provision of God Himself. That's what chapter 17 is all about. This young prophet is turning into a mature prophet who knows how to deal with real life so that when he gets to chapter 18, he can deal with the events around him because when you get to chapter 18, he's not going to step into a king's life and speak a word and then go hide. No, when he gets to 18, he's going to have to put his whole life on the line to the finish publicly. And I think in the condition he was in at Kareth, he would not be able to stand that test. So God is readying this man of God, building confidence and conviction in him. Now look at verses 17 and 18. And by the way, God always builds great men and women not in public arenas. I want you to know that. Not at a platform here. He always builds great men and women in private valleys, in secret spots, being with ordinary people, 
dealing with ordinary real life situations. It's there that you develop into a real man or woman of God. And then he takes you to the higher place. At least if he's leading you. Look at verses 17 and 18. Another real life situation hits. Now it came about that after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. So she said to Elijah, what I think any mom would say, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death? See, here's a tragedy going on. And by the way, let's kind of put, because there's another story going on apart from Elijah's. It's the widows, this pagan woman that thinks nobody cares about her. And just imagine her life. There was a time in her life where she stood at the altar, maybe a Canaanite altar, committed her life to a man who was the man of her dreams. Short time later, she gave birth to a son and they were going to live happily ever after. And we know not how, but... He was taken out of the way. And rather than living happily ever after, she found herself as an impoverished single parent. That's where she found herself. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, she lived in a culture that did not pay any attention to those women. It scorned them. So she had all this responsibility, but no resources. And then on top of that, God sends a plague. And she doesn't get to escape the plague. She's part of that. And then a man of God shows up at her house who makes demands of her. And then at the last moment, her son comes home one day and says, Mom, I don't feel too good. And he dies. Now that's real life. What Mashiach felt like? Probably like Joe Bailey, who in his psalm of death of an 18-year-old boy writes, Leave me alone, Lord. I cannot see such waste. You have a heaven full of treasure. Couldn't you have waited until you have exercised your claim on this one? Don't you feel her pain here? Notice in verse 18, she wants to blame Elijah. Hey, I brought you in. You're a man of God. and Look what you've done. And then at the same time, she brings up her own sin. Maybe it's my fault. You know, when you get into tragic situations, you're looking for whose fault is it on this innocent person? But the reality is, is that God is at work. We don't like to think that, but God is at work. And Elijah is being tested here. And Elijah is doing something that only a seasoned prophet would do. Rather than react and go, good grief. You know, what do we do? Or, I don't know what to do. Or, why is this happening to me again? I think Elijah sits there kind of quietly and hears the voice of God. And knows that here is an opportunity. This is a test. Doo. Notice what he does. In verse 19, he says to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and he laid him on his own bed. And he does what a real man of God does. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He expresses his feeling. But then he says, as he stretches himself out upon the child, three times he calls on the Lord and says, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. Three times. A Trinitarian prayer to a Trinitarian God. And he asks something that no one had seen 
in the Old Testament up until this time. That's what I want you to know. You know, we think of it looking back. This happened all the time. But for all these hundreds of years, no one had ever seen a resurrection. No one. No one thought about resurrection. And so in this improbable prayer, he actually prays something that never occurred in human history. He prays that this son would come back to life. And when he does, he brings the son into the widow. And then here's what the widow says in verse 24. As he gives the son to the widow, he says, See, your son is alive. And then, and that's the key word, by the way, then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. I hadn't known that up till now. Wondered that, leaned to that. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. What is most impressive at the end of chapter 17 is not only has God made Elijah ready for a public ministry, not only is God at work in a much broader way to condemn a whole nation for its sin, but in that process, and listen carefully, God has shown that He doesn't forget you, the individual. Who could imagine that while God had His mind on judging a nation, developing a prophet, that He would still keep in His mind's eye a lonely little lady up in Zarephath who's a pagan and yet God has His eye on her too. Thinking of her, in her estate, in her trouble. What an incredible encouragement that should be to any of us who think, God's forgotten me. No, He hasn't. This whole story is about God's incredible breadth to think of everything and anything at the same time. And the whole scenario is a drama, not just to the big things, but to the little things, to bring her to a place, a place of conversion where she would believe what is in us. Elijah's mind, and that is that Yahweh is God. There might be some of you here this morning who are in the midst of a struggle or a tragedy or a difficulty, and maybe you're sitting next to a friend who brought you from this church here because you've looked at their life and watched it for a while, and it has a certain sense of authenticity to it spiritually. I want you to know that's not by accident. We Christians call that providence. And what that is, is that is a real life offering to you of the care and love of Jesus Christ through a person. Just like that widow finally understood it was for her too. That's what's going on here. You, the individual, is important. Well, let me close. You notice it says the title of today's message is It's Always Something. But now I want you to finish the title of today's message at the bottom of the page in the blank. It is always something, and you're going to leave here, and it's continue to be. <laughs> That's the bad news. But now here's the good news at the bottom. You might just write this in. But in something, in something, there is always an opportunity to see the living God work. Take it. There's always an opportunity to see the living God work in your something. And I want to invite you this morning as we close it's time to give God your something. He can find a way. He really can find a way. Let Him take you to another level of spiritual life. Not just where you're praying and saying, boy, if I come to church and I pray, then somehow like a good luck charm, everything will be okay. No, that's not the way to face life. The way to face life is to move past that it to a living God who will carry you through those things and build an ever-increasing confidence that He is in fact the Lord of all life. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for 
what I, Elijah went through here in this valley between chapter 17 and 18, these two great momentous events in his life that we'll even talk about later. But Father, in the midst of that, there is this personal development. And I pray that this morning, if nothing else, we might hear that the little things that come into our life, those things come with a special design and twist on them. And I pray that we would see that on the one hand, though troublesome they may be, they are an opportunity to see you make a difference and to believe you even more for the life that you've given to us. So that our confidence might grow that not only are you Lord in this life, but in fact all the promises you made about the next life are things that we can rest comfortably in. Lord, help us live at that level. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.